Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonderful expressions of praise that we can offer to you. You are overwhelming to us. Your very perfections overwhelm our hearts and cause us to uh, be in reflection upon your goodness and your love and mercy and why it is that you, such a great and vast and marvelous God, would condescend and reach to us lowly sinners. And so it, it, is, uh, it is that truth that enlarges our hearts to come to you with open ears and hearts for your truth. We hunger for it. We long for it. We pray that this would be a rich time together in your word. For the sake of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. And I just want to say a quick thank you to all of you for praying for those of us who were able to be a part of the Shepherds Conference this year. And I just want to make you um, aware of the encouragement that it is when we are able to go. I have lots of uh, friends in the ministry, some of whom um, have tried for years to um, help their congregation and elders see the value of the refreshing time that pastors and church leaders and men of the church can have when they get together at place like the Shepherds Conference, and um, I've never had that concern here. We've, we've always been encouraged to go and be refreshed together in, uh, in the lives of one another as we spend time together, and, and it is truly an amazing time. Not only is the preaching marvelous and enriching and, and challenging to our hearts, uh, it is uh, theological, it is doctrinal, it is uh, powerful. And then there are these breakout sessions of a variety of subjects uh, so that we can think through some key issues regarding the life of the church and leading the church. And then we get together and we just have endless conversations across the, the spectrum of ministry uh, that goes on worldwide. We meet people from all over the world and, and so it's a wonderful time. And then there's the times when we sing corporately and uh, when you get... Uh, over 3,000 men in one room and they're singing hymns. It's, it's pretty powerful. Fernando Ortega was leading uh, some of the music and, uh, and praise in a couple of the sessions. And he took his phone and uh, while he was playing the piano, he set it down by the bench on record because he said later he had never heard uh, that kind of powerful singing as the men lifted their voices to the Lord. And, of course, Fernando Ortega has never heard Grace Emanuel Bible Church sing. So... Uh, I assure you he would do the same if he were here, but uh, it was a wonderful time to be together with the men, and I, I am so grateful for a church that sees the value of that time. Uh, and of course, being away is always difficult in ministry, and, and, and yet the Lord sustains, and, and you basically carry on the ministry in the lives of one another while we're away being refreshed. But I just want you to know the benefits are exponential in the life of the ministry and in our lives as leaders. Uh, next year, though, will be unique, and I just wanted to mention this to you. They, they did uh, something they don't normally do. They opened up registration during this last conference because next year is going to be a completely different conference. They're, they're going to put together a four-day conference rather than three days. It's going to be a summit on, the, on inerrancy, the issue of inerrancy. And so this lineup of 15 heavyweights in the subject of inerrancy, these pastors, R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson, MacArthur, a bunch of others, and four of the original signers of the 1970s document uh, on inerrancy that was, uh, that was drafted and signed in Chicago 37 years ago, will be at this conference um, the four of the last nine of the hundred that originally signed it will be at the conference. So it's going to be a really wonderful and very epic and very historic time. And so uh, I'm very excited already and already signed up, just so you know. I'm ready to go. And I'm, uh, I'm thrilled. Uh, we're going to try to get a bunch of young men to go uh, because we're going to be passing the baton on these crucial matters to the next generation, and we want them to be ready to take up the battle. Inerrancy is being attacked, as you know, in, in far more subtle ways uh, nowadays than ever before, and so we want to be ready for that. Also, you know, we, we are concerned that the staff sometimes is away, but I, in particular, have been 
uh, grateful for your prayers as I've been away. And, and yet again, remember I told you this last fall that this spring would be a challenging schedule. And so um, I'm not a guest preacher. I am. I have some absences. But uh, prior to Easter, though, I knew it would be kind of challenging because some other uh, trips were thrown in there. But uh, next week or this, this week, I leave for South Africa to visit our missionaries there. Uh, David and Virginia Morris, and uh, do some conferencing with them, as well as with Joel James, one of our beloved friends in ministry, uh, who serves alongside us numerous times when he's in the States. So uh, we're going to be doing all kinds of shepherds conferences, conferences to pastors, and then and then encouragement to the churches. So pray for me as I leave Thursday for just two weeks, uh, down and back, and it's a bit of a long trip, <laughs> uh, but... I get a lot done on the airplane. I think I can get about six or seven sermons done on that airplane ride. But uh, just so you're aware, that's where I'll be. The men here will serve you in, uh, faith, faithfully, no doubt. And then when I return, of course, we'll be into the wonderful Easter season together. And, and I'll be here through April and May and looking forward to that very much. So thank you for your patience with that, and I appreciate your prayers. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 3. At least while I'm here, we can jump in and out of Luke. <laughs> and last time, we uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Luke chapter 3, and, and we opened up with John the Baptist's message and, and the core thrust of his ministry. And, and make no mistake about it, uh, his message was clear, it wasn't foggy, it wasn't ambiguous, it was straight at it, out of the gate. It is the central message uh, that front loads the gospel, it tills the soil, it uh, turns up the fallow ground and the dirt of people's hearts, it makes them ready. This is the message that must be spoken. And the first prophet uh, of Christ's arrival in the New Testament era had this very same message, and that is none other than the message of repentance. Repentance, not a very popular word today, repentance, but it is indeed the central message that we offer when we come preaching Christ. You ever notice that all the religions of the world, no matter how strict or lenient, no matter whether they're ancient religions or modern religions, you notice how they, they can coexist with one another, even if their beliefs are divergent and completely opposite. They can coexist with one another and create entire cultures and empires centered around their beliefs, but no one, no culture, no nation, no empire will tolerate the ongoing growth of Christianity. That's true. Ancient cultures, modern cultures with religious beliefs embedded within them. Uh, they are tolerated, they are accepted, but Christianity is ever and always stiff-armed, maligned, and silenced. And if they can't silence Christianity, they certainly are going to try to get rid of it. It's interesting, there's no such universal, vigorous campaign against any other belief system worldwide. These religious systems of the world can totally oppose one another, but they coexist quite comfortably. They allow each other to flourish in their respective lands and cultures and among their peoples. And they say that they are important parts of the heritage of their cultures. Entire empires practice their beliefs for centuries unhindered. Not Christianity. Not at all. Since the dawn of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christianity has had no rest from the world's universal contempt. There have been a few longer stretches, such as the Reformation period or even the birth of our own nation, where the church has been allowed by the grace of God to flourish for a time. But it's not long before every culture, even a once morally conservative culture, just cannot let Christianity spread in peace. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because Christianity's message is so different than other religions. Other religions are, hey, struggle, get yourself righteous, uh, abuse yourself, get into some sort of monastery and, and be an ascetic and give up this and give up that. Christianity begins with a message of mercy from God and faith in a Savior who has reached out in love and died as a substitute 
No need to make yourself righteous because you can't. No need to struggle all your life to be good enough because it's impossible. The message of Christianity is just find hope in the work already done by a loving Savior and friend of sinners. It's ironic that such a wonderful message is so hated. People still want to snuff it out. Makes no sense. It's not rational. How can such a sweet message of comfort and rest be so despised? In John 15, verse 20 and 22, Jesus gives us the answer. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. If they persecuted me, they will persecute, persecute you. But these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know the one who sent me. And then here's the crux of it. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have guilt. But now they have no excuse for their sin. This is the issue. Unbelievers cannot stand Christianity if their heart is not soft to it because the issue inside of them is guiltiness. They are guilty. All sinners, you and I, our culture, our nation, everyone who has never been forgiven... We need a Savior because we are guilty. And unbelievers know it. They know it. They, they feel it in the deepest parts of their being. And that guilt only compounds when they come in contact with the truth. Jesus Christ alone is truth. His Word is truth. His people have believed the truth and they live the truth and walk in the truth. And wherever there's a true Christian who's been rescued by the truth and is proclaiming it and living it, that increases the deep guilt and shame of anyone who won't listen to the truth. And you might say, well, yeah, but I mean, but God offers His mercy and forgiveness. Why wouldn't they want to cast off that burden of guilt and, and find rest? Well, there happens to be a problem. There happens to be a barrier to finding rest. Here it is. If you want forgiveness, you must turn from sin to God. You must turn from sin to God. Here's what that would look like in the life of a sinner. In order to find God's forgiveness, you must become humbled and broken... You must confess unworthiness and your desperate need. So you must become humbled and broken and confess unworthiness and the desperation of your condition. You must admit that God's just judgment is just and deserved. You must be convinced that Jesus Christ is the hope of the sinner, the only hope. Not you, not your righteousness, not your goodness, not anything you bring, not your family, not your heritage, not your pedigree, not your money, your wealth, your religious practices, your good deeds, your friend, uh, your friendliness to people, uh, even, even your human forgiveness of someone who doesn't like you. You don't trust in any of those things. You must be convinced that Jesus Christ is the only hope and you must turn to him in faith alone with no trust in any of those other things. A sinner has a barrier. Because to find forgiveness, a sinner must turn from sin to God, which involves humbling, confession, and admission that Jesus Christ is the only hope, and I am no hope. I have no hope. In a word, they must repent. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago, this is what repentance looks like. Repentance is a turning from the old, from self-trust to God's salvation. In fact, <clears throat> there was a sweet little church plant in Thessalonica. When Paul went to preach the gospel of repentance to Thessalonica, there was this little church plant that was born, and he describes that when he went back down the coast after he left Thessalonica, he'd already heard all the way down in Corinth and beyond from other believers that the Thessalonians turned from idols... To serve a living and true God, First Thessalonians 1 verse 10. He'd already heard it. The missionaries got down the coastline, and, and they already heard about the church plant in Thessalonica. 
in the midst of hostility and the synagogues uh, filled, filled with Jews were angry at Paul coming in town and they were coming in to try to, to try to do what they did to him in Philippi up the road where they beat him in the head, left him for dead. And a church was born just down the road in Thessalonica. And he says, by the time I got down to Corinth, I'd already heard of your conversion. Uh, they, they were telling me, oh, we heard what happened when you went and preached the gospel there. They turned from idols. They left the old life. All of it. They ran from it. All true gospel proclamation begins with this message. Repent. And the very first prophet of Christ's arrival said the very same thing. Notice verse 3. John the Baptist came into all the district around the Jordan. Luke 3 verse 3. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist's ministry was a message to turn. Turn from that old stuff. Run from that old stuff. Know that that old stuff will kill you. It will damn you eternally. Run from it. Run to God. To Christ. To Christ alone. Confess Him. He is the master of your soul. He is judge. He will forgive. Jesus' own preaching ministry began with that message. Mark 1.15 He said, repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist preached that message to a guilty culture. Man, they were riddled with it. And some were religious, as we'll see in a moment. Some uh, went to church. Some were Jewish leaders. Some were the doctors of theology within the religious system. And then others were just the smattering of the crowds. They might have had a little religion in their life or might have been outright pagans. And there they were in the wilderness listening to this guy who said he's a prophet. And his message was, repent. And it fell on guilty hearts. Everyone was guilty. Everyone. And some, they weren't about to take an honest look at their life. They weren't about to. Some believed. Oh, thank, thank the Lord. And some weren't about to look at their spiritual condition with any kind of honesty. We saw last time the, the circumstances into which this message came. It was, of course, a time where moral degradation was rampant. It was a time of moral infamy. We saw that in the reign of Tiberius when we studied it last time. It was a time of religious hypocrisy, verse 2, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, who both were on the take all the time. Hypocrites. And then it was a time where God had promised mercy because He'd sent John out of the wilderness through his life and left him alone until just the right time. Verse 2 says the word of God came to John and he was to go. And so the thrill of the gospel was that it would extend God's mercy to these evil cultures way beyond hopeless. Why? Because when John delivered this daring thesis, repent, he would do it to everyone in the crowd who was guilty. All of them were guilty and God would save some. Some would have the knowledge of their sins revealed back in chapter 1 verse 77. Some would experience the mercy of God remembering His holy covenant. Verse 72 of chapter 1. Some would come to see this help to Israel and the remembrance of His mercy. Verse 54 of chapter 1. Some would find clarity about the Messiah and that He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. Some, some would repent and their hearts would find a new king who would reign over them as chapter 1 verse 33 says. It was a baptism of repentance. I said to you last time, this was not the baptism of, of Christians. This was not uh, what would later become the institution of baptism where Christians would identify with Christ, but this was the beginning of it. This was a baptism saying, by the symbolism of it, I turn. I repent. I, I have humble brokenness over my old life and self-trust. And I turn from it. I junk it. I trash it. I get away from it like Paul said in Philippians 3. And I turn to God. And I want nothing of the old life. That's an interesting thing when we share the gospel with people. 
and we say repent. Uh, the church has done two things to create a problem. One, we, we don't actually define repentance, and some, some in evangelicalism don't even say the word anymore. Like one well-known pastor said, I preach repentance, but no one knows it. <laughs> He's trying to soften it. The other reality is that if we don't define repentance, we cannot expect for people to understand what that actually means. And so you know what happens? We accept lesser versions of it. We accept verbalizations of it without the actual evidence of it. Not so with John. He wanted them to come to this ceremonial baptism which showed that they wanted cleansing. I mean, that's just admitting I want cleansing. I am dirty. That's what it was. They knew about ritual washings. So some might ask the question, why did he want them to be baptized in water? Because he wanted them to come out and show evidence publicly to everyone, I am dirty, I need to be clean. For some, it might not have been genuine. For many, it was genuine. This is the image of true faith and repentance. This is what John preached. You don't clean up your life before you come to Christ. Not at all. That's not what he's saying. But the only way you can have your heart renewed, the only way your desires will change, and your conscience will be cleansed, and your mind filled with truth, and you have new holy convictions, is if the Spirit of God turns up your heart of sin and shows it to you in all of its blackness, and you say, yes, that's true of me. You can't say of your sin, well... Part of that is true of me, or some of that is true of me, or it, it is um, black, but it's not all that black. Can't say that. If you're really going to take an honest look, true repentance begins with the acknowledgement, the confession that this is black. My life is black. I am nothing. And I deserve what I get. That's the preparation called for here. And so people were coming. But John, John uh, is pinpoint in his accuracy. He does not let anyone get away with softer versions of repentance. Notice verse 7. And so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits... In keeping with repentance. And don't you begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now stop right there. The first thing John does here is says, he, he says in his message... As you're coming for this baptism, I want you to know this. Repentance means you, you are willing to forsake religious pretense of any kind. To forsake religious pretense. In other words, John the Baptist does not want them to get away with appearing spiritual. People do that all the time, whether they're religious or not. Uh, even people who've never been religious before sometimes come to a church service and attach themselves to the lingo because they're wanting to appear interested, to appear a part of it, to snuggle up next to it. They want some help. They want some appeasing of their conscience and their guilt, but they don't want it God's way. So they're willing to take on a little bit of the appearance of it. John says, I'm not going to have any of that here. John would never quickly accept someone's profession of sorrow over sin unless there was a willingness to forsake their self-exalting life. And so he was saying to the crowds, by the way, that's a present verbal idea, so this is the regular ongoing thing he was saying to them. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he surveys the crowd. He sees religious leaders of Israel coming out. That's what Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us that in the midst of the crowds, there were religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, who were also saying they, they want to be baptized. That's very interesting. They probably had groups of Jewish disciples around them. I mean, you can, you can see the scene. Don't imagine that the Pharisees aren't noticeable in the crowd. They loved to be noticed. 
So they probably came out to John because somebody ran to the city and said, this guy says he's a prophet and he's giving a cleansing baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the holy ones of Israel come out with their disciples in tow and all their regalia on. And you can, you can imagine too, they have sort of a strut. They have kind of a walk about them, a gate, you know, head held high, chest out. Holy people looking around to see if anyone can see them. And what are they after? They're saying they're coming out for John's baptism, but for some of them, they just want the affirmation of his ministry because they had certain pretentious ways about them, an air of superiority. But there would be no hiding the suspicious countenance as they pretended a genuine interest in this prophet. They would have suspicion on their face. And John sees all that religious formality. You know what he's not seeing? Tears. Brokenness. Soft hearts. He's not seeing that. You know what he's not seeing? He's not seeing a shattered conscience. He's not seeing them coming and saying, get rid of these robes, get rid of this vestige of old religion, get rid of my self-righteousness. I want this. He's not seeing any of that. Luke, by the way, doesn't mention Pharisees and Sadducees. Although, notice, in, he does say in verse 8, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. So clearly he's including the religious leaders in what he's telling them. But Luke doesn't mention them. He just says crowds because Luke is a Gentile and he wants everyone to know John the Baptist didn't just hone in on the Jewish leaders to, with God's mercy. This was to everyone. This was to everyone. Matthew had a different purpose. Crowds were coming out to see and hear him and he was constantly giving this central message. And notice he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's an abrupt introduction to the sermon. But you know what he's doing? He's picking up the imagery from verse 5. Look at verse 5. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked will be made straight and the rough roads smooth so that all flesh can see the salvation of God. What is he doing here? He's talking about when God comes to visit sinners, judgment is imminent. Judgment is imminent. And even though it fell on Christ in His first advent, it isn't long after Christ's resurrection and exaltation that the message of judgment is, again, put in the viewfinder of every Christian. He's coming soon. His judgment is swift. And so John, the Baptist, picks up the imagery of a wilderness here when judgment falls and God begins to upend the topography, every creature scatters, especially snakes. Don't they? That's the imagery here. You bunch of snakes, you're coming out of your hole because judgment is falling. You're slithering out of your hole. Mountains are crashing down. Ravines are being filled. And the crooked is being made straight. And rough paths are cleared. God is coming very near. And the sinner better wake up and respond. And you come out here acting like you're awakened and responding. But you're poisonous. Because in your little hole, you're... A snake. You're, you're full of poison. You're full of deadliness. And you come out running for the refuge. You don't really want it because you haven't left your poisonous life. That's all wrapped up in this imagery. It's very vivid, very graphic. They're hypocrites who spread the poison of sinful living in dark places and then for fear of being left out of some refuge, some prophet's words of blessing, they slither toward the nearest place where they can get some easy baptism done, some easy ritual done. That's so much like people who feign religion. It's so much like people whom you share the gospel with and they say, oh sure, I'll come to your Bible study. What are they doing? They want fire insurance. What are they doing? They want some guarantee. They're slithering out of their old life to come and act like they're interested. And they're not interested at all. They're not getting rid of the old life. John will have none of it. John will accept none of that. No easy ticket. Religious leaders whose unholy lives are lived all day long and then they slither out to be baptized as a show of interest and a desire not to miss out on some easy ticket Man, if John's a prophet, I'll just slip out there into the wilderness, get, get this little thing done, jump through the prophet's hoop. 
I'm good to go. Verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. God doesn't need your holiness. He doesn't even need your humanness. (laughs) He can take an inanimate rock and make a worshiper of God. I mean, there must be a little little sarcasm in that too. You think you're going to come out here as some self-made holy human? You're dumber than a rock. There's got to be that going on in there. I can't be dogmatic about that free translation, but that's what I'm saying is there. (laughs) Look at John 8 for a minute. Jesus, of course, got into it with the Pharisees over the same issue. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, I mean, think about that. Jews who had believed him. This is what Jesus was saying. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. There it is. Where's the fruit? It's got to be fruit. Or your faith is dead faith, James said. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. And they, look at the they of verse 33. Who's it referring to? Verse 1, the Jews who had believed him. And you have the religious system and some of the Jews believing in him. And verse 33, they answered, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Oh, my word. This is huge. Now the pretense is unearthed. They're not interested in repentance because repentance means the old life is admitted, confessed and junked and trashed. And they're still holding on to their heritage and their pedigree in Abraham physically rather than by faith. Jesus answers them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. That that does it. Do they commit sin? They'd have to admit it, but they're not going to admit it publicly because, after all, they're wearing the righteous robes of, of Jewish theology. Slave doesn't remain in the house forever, verse 35. The son does remain forever. If the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And I speak the things which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. Show the fruit. But as it is, you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do that. Your deeds, you're doing the deeds of your father. And they castigated him, referring back to his birth uh, and Mary's pregnancy without Joseph. And they said, you're born of fornication. We weren't born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me. You're of your father, the devil, verse 44. There's the same message. Where's the fruit? The fruit would be to love Jesus. The fruit would be to leave the old life and love Jesus. To run from the old life and run to Christ. People tell me they repent. They tell me they have turned to Christ. And I, I, they can say the sinner's prayer clearly or a sinner's prayer. They can tell me that they're in a Bible study. They, but if you don't leave the old life and run to Jesus as your new master, you're lying. You're fooled. Verse 9, back in Luke chapter 3, John says, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So that every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment is imminent. This is the wrath to come that he mentioned in verse 7. John is a prophet and every Jew knew that when a prophet shows up speaking impending judgment on Israel, this was the most serious kind of situation. You better think twice. You better listen to him. You better find out. Because when a prophet shows up in Israel... Without exception, every time judgment had come that was predicted by a true prophet. And it was carried out to the last detail. No exceptions. And so if John is saying that God's axe is in his hand, 
And he's already measuring the swing. You know, how, you know what it happens when somebody cuts down a tree? They, they get the axe in their hand and they lay that head on the root of the tree and measure it off before they get to swing. That's what he's saying. God has already measured it off. He's laid the axe head at the root and national desolation is not far off and eternal desolation is impending. True repentance is that serious. And beloved, here's why you... You see John the Baptist saying it with such urgency because false repentance, false repentance is so desperately soul-threatening because once you've heard the truth and then you decide you're going to pretend to be genuine and yet be a liar inside, you're that much further from coming to faith in Christ. Religious pretense must be forsaken. You don't want to be self-deceived. You want to forsake religious pretense and forsake self-deception. You need to dread self-deception because God may close your eyes permanently. He doesn't owe a sinner anything. He doesn't owe him mercy. Say, how do I know? How do I know that repentance is genuine? Well, John, John uh, regularly gave answers to individuals in the crowd and he, he just, with pinpoint accuracy, went for the jugular. He went for their pet idolatries. Their pet places where they worship. He went after those pet areas. That's what he did. And so notice verse 10, the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? By the way, the verbal idea there is that this was the constant question. All right, in light of the judgment, so it's like there's this urgency. Okay, you've scared me to death. So what are you saying? I'm here, aren't I? I, I want the baptism you offer. Isn't that enough? And John the Baptist sees the classes of people and he knows how they operate. It's interesting. He lived in the wilderness, but this is... This is the truth-penetrating revelation from God. He knows what God's standard is, and he knows the human heart. He knows his own human heart. He's walked with God in the wilderness by himself, thinking it through. God is renewing his mind. There's no distractions. He is 100% consumed with the Word of God, and it has energized by the Spirit's power his mind. He can perceive things that, are, that, that mature men, after years of seasoned Christianity, can perceive. We are neophytes compared to what this guy knew. And he had the gift of divine revelation coming into his mind. And so he can see the crowd. And he sees the classes that they come from. And he sees the ways of life that they come from. And when someone in the crowd, a particular class of person, says, what do I need to do? He goes right for the pet issue. And that's what you see here. Luke gives us some examples of people that were in the crowd. Verse 11. Verse 11, and he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So the first example you have here is if you know someone who says they repent, but they are selfish, not battling with selfish, they love selfishness. They live a life of selfishness. They don't love people, they love themselves and live for themselves. By the way, the tunic issue, two tunics, the, in ancient times they wore two. The undergarment was essential as an undergarment tunic, and then there was a tunic that clothed you over the top of that. And uh, it, this isn't a reference to wealthy people who have two. Uh, what he's saying is some people don't even have the second one to protect them from the elements. You give them that one. Someone has a need, you have the undergarments, and they don't have anything, clothe them. Take care of their needs. He's not talking about clothes per se, just the spirit of unselfish love. That's the issue. I want to face what's deep down in my soul. Well, then are you willing to look very closely at the patterns of your life? 
When someone comes to you and says, okay, this guilt is overwhelming me. I don't want to face this guilt deep down in my soul. I don't want to surely face God without, without hope. What do I do? Listen, that is not the moment to try to smoothly ooze them into the kingdom. In that moment, you want to ask them, are you willing to deal with the thing that keeps you from confessing and repenting? Are you willing to forsake the very pet issue in your life that has kept you? In some of these people's cases, it was just selfish, unloving lifestyle. And they weren't about to run from it. Don't give somebody like that a formula prayer to pray. Don't tell them they don't have to turn from their old life of sin. They do. They don't have to clean up their life to earn salvation, but repentance is a turning. And it's a turning from those things that you have loved to loving Christ. Turn from idols. Whatever you worship. And John mentions people in the crowd who... They, they have food. They just don't care about anyone else. They have clothing and shelter and those kind of things. But they, they don't care about anyone else. They are cruel, selfish hoarders for their own comfort. They will not sacrifice for anyone. They love their personal time. They secretly guard it. They don't give it to anyone. They love their resources. They secretly guard them. They love their life comforts. And they don't want them ever infringed upon. John will later say in 1 John 3, 17 and 18, whoever has the world's goods, not talking about wealthy, just has goods, and then you see someone in need, in other words, your goods could meet that need without, of course, uh, disrupting the meeting of your own needs. God doesn't expect you to give all your stuff away and sit there and, and have nothing. But, but as you've been given things, if your resources can meet the need of someone else and you close your heart of compassion toward them, John says, how does the love of God dwell in you? Selfish, unloving conduct toward people. John the Baptist would let none of them come and get baptized unless they were dealing with that. Notice the second issue is integrity of heart. Verse 12, and some tax collectors also came to be baptized. <laughs> tax collectors. Wow, I mean, this is amazing. Don't have time to go into it, but this is someone no one would want to be around. The Jewish leaders had cast them out. They were considered vile and disgraceful. They were extortionists. They were underground thugs. Uh, it doesn't matter what their social status and appearance was on the surface. They were all involved in massive extortion for their own greed. They had no integrity. And John says, oh, you're in the crowd too? Oh, yeah. Oh, you want to be baptized? Okay, here's what repentance looks like for you. I mean, can you imagine those guys standing around their friends? Hey, what are we supposed to do? What does he say? Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. I mean, this is no wiggle room. Stop extorting. I mean, he cuts across every stronghold of the sinful heart. They're greedy. He says, stop being greedy. They're bitter about their station in life. And so they're using that as a justification to rob other people so they can live the way they want to live. They're prejudiced. They're full of sinful fear. They're full of conspiracy, deceit, jealousy, and envy. And John the Baptist says, all right, here's how you can demonstrate that none of those things are important to you anymore. You're going to work to run to Christ for all those things. Here's the proof of it. Stop taking more than you have been commanded by the government to take. That would cut him. I'm not sure I want to get baptized by this guy. He's not a prophet. <laughs> Unselfish love is called for. Integrity of heart is called for. And then look at, look at this last category. There were some in the crowd who were conscripted and in the military, verse 14. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What are we going to do? I mean, I think they might have thought they might get off the hook a little bit. I mean, we have a job to do. <laughs> 
We're told by this evil government to do certain things. We get a free pass on that stuff that we do sometimes. John the Baptist says, you know what repentance looks like for you guys? And I'm sure everyone around is now listening in. Oh man, he's going to get after the soldiers. He says, it looks like kindness and contentment. Notice verse 14. And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force. Oh my word. Or accuse anyone falsely. In other words, to gain the advantage. And be content with your wages. <laughs> he knows, he gets the drill. They're complainers, angry, bitter. So he says, stop using your position to pridefully dominate people. He knew what soldiers were doing. Yeah, I can take this from you. Oh, you're going to give me some back talk? Well, I'll just use some force. I'll be cruel. I can. I'm free. Boy, the human heart loves power, doesn't it? Sinful human heart loves power. He says, stop using your position to be proud and to dominate people. Stop slandering to gain an advantage. Well, that takes them out of the system. I mean, half the time they were in there testifying to the authorities that this guy, uh, you know, had done something evil. Why? Because he was getting a little payoff from the inner circle of officials to say such things against that person so they could exact more taxes and put the guy in jail and get his family's estate. It was organized crime. He says, stop slandering and be content with your wages. Be kind and content. That's what repentance looks like for you people. So, beloved, think about it. True repentance always bears the mark of being broken over, over the ugly and wicked way we've lived our life. True repentance always bears the marks of brokenness over the ugliness, the defiant wickedness through which we would at times say, Lord, give me all the mercy, all the grace, but I won't dispense any of that to anyone else. And true repentance is a turning from that offense of living and loving those evil ways and turning to the love and the life of Christ. No longer loving and living according to those things, and turning to the love of Christ and the life of Christ as my example, as my refuge, as my only hope. The good fruit of true repentance will always be the exact opposite, listen, of those besetting sins that used to dominate our life of self-centered unbelief. So what was your besetting sin before you came to Christ? You know then, don't you? What repentance has done makes you admit it. D.L. Moody, powerful gospel passion, founder of Moody Bible Institute, he, he said this about true repentance. There's a good deal of trouble among people about what repentance really is. If you ask people what it is, they'll tell you, oh, it's feeling sorry. If you ask a man if he repents, he'll tell you, oh yes, I generally feel sorry for my sins. That's not repentance. It is something more than feeling sorry. Repentance is turning right about and forsaking sin. Let the guilty forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That is what it is. If a man does not turn from his sin, he won't be accepted of God. And if, a, if righteousness doesn't produce a turning about, a turning from bad to good, it isn't true righteousness. We do not walk in the same way as before we were converted. A man or a woman who professed Christianity and yet goes in the same old way has not been born again. When we're born again, we're born in a new way. Christ is that new way himself. We give up the old way and we take his. The old way leads to death, the new way to everlasting life. In the old way, Satan leads us. In the new way, the Son of God leads us. We are led by him, not into bondage and darkness, but into the way of peace and joy. End quote. When you give the gospel, will you give the same one John the Baptist gave? Turn. When you tell someone to repent, tell them, turn from the old life, turn to Christ. You can't make yourself righteous, but in true repentance, 
There is that softening work that God is doing. True repentance, it, it's married to faith. You turn away from the old and you believe in Christ, His death, His resurrection, His exaltation, His covering righteousness, His forgiveness. And then He becomes your affection, your love, not the old life. Oh, sure, you're going to battle with the old remnants. Sure, but you're not in Christ under its dominion. You're not under the old life and its power. You can run from it. Shackles and chains have come off. Don't let someone carry themselves alongside the Bible study or the church or your Christian life or your Christian testimony without asking them that hard question. So, what's the fruit of your repentance? What's the one thing that kept you back from Christ that you, you would tell me is now something that you just absolutely run from? You don't want it. You might get dragged into it from time to time, but you don't want it. You might struggle and slip in those old areas, but you hate it. There's misery there, and you don't love it. If you say to me, I repent, I know Christ, but you, you carry this sort of pretense but the old life is your haunt, it's your love, it's where you secretly traffic and then come out and slither out of that poisonous life every once in a while to have a little religious refuge. You're not saved. You don't know the Lord. And I would want to tell you, like John the Baptist told them in the crowd, this is what fruit looks like in your life. Help people know what the fruit of repentance looks like in their life. They'll know, because they know they're besetting sin. It's in their life. They feel guilty about it. They are guilty about it. And lead them to true repentance. Bow with me. Lord, as John the Baptist's ministry unfolds, it's just so penetrating. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you that we weren't given any wiggle room. I'm so grieved that evangelicalism has been slowly just uh, sucking the clarity and content and depth and wisdom of the truth right out of the, the silly offerings to sinners that have been so often now given. Lord, may we help the troubled soul to see repentance for what it is. A true sorrow, a true confessing, a true humbling and a true turning. And Lord, we know that you must produce it, and you do produce it. So show sinners their sin, and may we be a help to them so they can see it rightly. Thank you for teaching us never to have a shallow repentance, even, even toward you, our spiritual parent. Even in our sinfulness, may we come back to you in genuine repentance and begin to see the fruit of the power of the Spirit in our lives. We are saved and we're rescued and, and we're grateful we will never face your eternal wrath. We don't want to displease you as we serve you. So may our repentance daily not be shallow, even though we're already rescued from your wrath. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.